This podcast is brought to you by Langley and Benack, a full-service South and Central Texas law firm that delivers the highest quality legal advice coupled with exceptional client service. From our main office in San Antonio, we provide the resources of a national firm while maintaining close ties to the communities in which we practice. To learn more, please visit us at langleybenack.com. That's langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Today's episode is part seven of a seven-part series on managing business risk. This series is hosted by attorneys Dane Patrick and Mark Macias. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Langley and Benack podcast are for information purposes only and should not be considered legal or professional advice for any particular situation. The presentation of this informational content does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website at www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Hi, this is Dane Patrick with my partner Mark Macias. We're attorneys at Langley and Benack. We're here today on Series 2, Episode 7 of our podcast. And today we want to talk about how to kind of pull everything together that we've talked about in the previous six episodes. You know, the last episode we talked about real world examples that Mark and I have experienced as litigation attorneys. And then this time we want to talk to you about uh, kind of a hypothetical. And our hypothetical is going to be that, that someone wants to start a landscaping business and just all the steps they might go through to protect that business and its owners from personal liability. So Mark, what do you think the first step would be as far as getting your business in order if you want to start this landscaping business. Dane, I think one really important thing to remember here is that a lot of the concepts that we've talked about over the course of our prior six episodes are equally applicable to a very large corporation with hundreds of employees and to our situation that we that we're describing here today. In other words, all of these concepts, whether big or small company, can be utilized to help protect both the large companies and the small companies. In our case, we want to develop a landscaping business, and one of the first things we're going to want to do is bring that person into the office and try to figure out that person's needs so that we can best establish what kind of entity to set up for that person. So, Dane, with your experience, what, what would you recommend to this person, this hypothetical individual, coming in and telling you he wants to start up a landscaping business? So, Mark, like you said, whether it's an individual or a group of individuals that want to start a business, the principles we're talking about are all the same. And the way I, I see it is that, is that especially the corporate attorney's job in that situation would be to sit down and talk to the client and say, look, you know, You've got a business that you're going to build. That business is your castle, and it's your job to build the castle. But our job here, uh, assume they're coming into Langley and Benack, at Langley and Benack, is to build a wall around your castle. We want to protect you and your business from liability the best way that we know how. So 
in our example with the landscaping business, let's call it ABC Landscaping, um, the first thing that the attorneys are going to want to advise them on doing is what type of entity should be used to operate the business. And from a legal side, what we're usually most concerned about for our clients is making sure that that landscaper is protected from personal liability. For example, he's probably going to be hiring people, right, to, to work for him. Uh, they're going to be operating lawnmowers and other, maybe other heavy machinery. And so there's an exposure that they could get hurt, they could accidentally injure someone else. And if they're working for him, that could all flow back and uh, expose him to risk and liability. So we don't want him to be personally liable. We want the worst case scenario is that his business assets would be the only thing at risk, which goes to choosing the proper entity. And so as we talked about in our first episode, ABC Landscaping is, uh, you know, obviously they could, he's the sole proprietor right now until he forms a corporation. He could operate as a sole proprietor, but now he's still exposed personally to liability. So in that case, typically the corporate attorneys would tell him to choose uh, either a corporation or a limited liability company. In his situation, the general uh, limited partnerships not really a feasible alternative. So it's usually going to be one of those two vehicles because both of them would provide him with uh, protection from personal liability. I'll tell you that I'm seeing in, in more cases than not that the choice is the limited liability company because <clears throat> of the different tax elections like we talked about earlier that can be made. Um, he could choose to be operated as a, in that case, as a, uh, he could make an election to be treated as a, a sole proprietor for tax purposes, even though he's going to have a limited liability company protective shield. And I think that's the, actually the default. He could elect to be treated as a corporation, a C-corp, or he could be elected to be treated as what they call an S-corporation uh, to avoid double taxation. And I won't get into all that because I'm not a uh, tax attorney or a CPA, but uh, what I will tell you is that it, that's also a good time for him to start talking to uh, a CPA and for our firm to start working with the CPA. So <clears throat> let's assume that he chooses the limited liability company. We talk to the CPA and the CPA says, yeah, from a tax standpoint, we think that's the best way to go. It's very simple to, to actually regi register that company. All he has to do and is we would draft a certificate of formation, which is kind of a registration document that gets filed with the Secretary of State and says this is going to be the name of the company in our situation, ABC Landscaping. Uh, and that's assuming the name's available and it's not taken. And it would also list who the registered agent is for service. It would list how it was going to be managed. Remember, a limited liability company can be managed by the, quote, members who own it, like shareholders, or it can be managed by what they call managers, which are like board of directors. And once again, that's one of the uh, uh, benefits of a limited liability company is the flexibility on how it gets operated. So you get that set up, <clears throat> you have an organizational meeting, uh, basically just to let the world know that you're operating like a limited liability company. You adopt what they call a company agreement, which is like the bylaws to the corporation. And that kind of tells you how to operate it from a legal standpoint. And voila, at least at that point in time, you are 
good to go and now you have everything in place where if something happens you hire employees they accidentally injure someone uh, that only the company assets would typically be exposed and not your personal assets but Mark, I don't even want the company assets to be exposed if it has to do with some type of accident like that. I mean, I understand uh, on a breach of contract, you know, maybe the company assets are going to be exposed most likely. But, you know, what about in a catastrophic event? There's an accident. Uh, somebody working for the company accidentally injures someone. We don't want the company assets to be exposed. So what, what should we do next? What should our next step be? Right. So this goes all the way back to episode one where we talked about the different things that a company can do first to shield itself from liability. And you've done a phenomenal job of explaining how they set up the corporation to go from the 10-year business of Joe Smith doing business as ABC Company to now doing business solely as ABC Company LLC because you've set them up properly. The next step should be is... Uh, we're assuming that this company has had some growth and that they've had to hire some employees. So you have multiple people for which the members or the shareholders or whoever is in charge of this particular entity is going to be responsible. The very next thing you want to do is talk to your insurance agent. Uh, it, it could be that this conversation takes place after you've talked to an attorney to find out what specific questions or what types of needs you might have from an insuring perspective but you go and talk to an insurance agent who has the ability to sell you a corporate general liability insurance policy as well as a corporate auto liability policy. In our last episode, we talked about a real-world examples of how there were punitive damages that uh, had been awarded in cases for exemplary damages for conduct that involved fraud and malice and gross neglect. So one of the things you will also want to talk to that insurance agent about is an umbrella policy. You want to try to see that you can have as much as possible covered such that you are insuring enough monies to protect the assets of the company. So that if that eventual unfortunate catastrophic incident that, that occurs comes into play like you discussed, they have sufficient coverage to protect them against those kinds of things. But beyond just those liability type of policies that you would have in place, you also want to have other policies because now you have a number of employees um, and unfortunately not everybody does things the right way. From time to time you have an employee who steals from the company. Well, you can talk to an insurance agent about that and you can have theft insurance. It's called employee theft insurance. Um, let's say that you have a competitor and you and he are very uh, ardent competitors. You go up against each other all the time. You secure a lot of the same contracts and you start bad-mouthing each other. Well, there's an insurance policy for that. It's called a personal and advertising uh, insurance policy that protects you against things like libel and slander and defamation and the like. So. After that, you're going to want to make sure that the employees that you do have in place are protected too because the last thing you want to happen is for an employee to be injured in an unfortunate circumstance. So you can talk to your insurance agent there and you can obtain a workers' comp insurance policy which helps pay for the medical bills and a percentage of the time off from work. They call that indemnity for the lost time that that person is off of work. 
not only does it protect the uh, employee who has these unforeseen medical bills, unforeseen time off from work, but it has the side benefit of protecting the company from potential liability because, as we talked about in one of our prior podcasts, you have the workers' compensation bar that's established in the labor code that generally prevents an employer who has workers' comp insurance from being sued by their employee for an event arising out of their employment. So there are a number of types of insuring agreements that can be purchased through your insurance policy, but you have to know what to ask and you have to have the good insurance agent that can provide you with all of those various coverages so that you have that umbrella that protects you in the event that some unfortunate event occurs. So what I'm hearing, there's probably three basic types of insurance coverages or policies that the business is going to want to buy. Uh, one is automobile coverage, uh, one is workers' compensation, and the other is a good commercial general liability policy. Is that correct? That's right. So the automobile liability coverage is going to guard against claims for uh, anything involving the use of an automobile. One of your employees runs a red light and collides with another person, and then the company gets sued. The auto liability coverage policy will provide you with insurance for that type of claim. But let's say that you and your company are given a contract and you go onto a site and somebody happens to get injured at your workplace. Uh, Perhaps it's a subcontractor of another contractor and they are now making a claim against you for what your employees allegedly did. Well, that's the commercial general liability policy that would come into play and it would help guard against those claims. So the The other example that you talked about is the workers' comp policy, and that policy would involve one of your own workers who happens to have gotten injured at that same accident site that we talked about before. Well, that workers' comp insurance policy is going to provide coverage for that employee as well as have a side benefit for the company so that that company cannot get sued, generally speaking, as a result of that event. So, Mark, during one of our episodes, we also talked about maintaining the corporate veil and veil piercing. Do you recall that? I sure do. Could you uh, briefly explain kind of what veil piercing means? Sure. Uh, Veil piercing is an attempt by a party to try to uh, get at, if you will, the personal assets of the people who are members of, in our case, a corporation. They are making allegations. Limited liability. Excuse company. me, limited liability company. Thanks for the correction. They are making allegations that suggest that by virtue of the way in which the uh, limited liability company is being run, that not only should the company assets be at stake, but also the personal assets of the members of that limited liability company. Uh, it is a mechanism that's used in cases to try to secure more monies to attempt to compensate somebody for an alleged event that is the basis of that lawsuit. And so they call it veil piercing because literally you're piercing the protective veil that's wrapped around the owners and officers uh, to get to them for personal liability of the for the uh, regarding the obligations of the company, right? That's right. And so in Texas, I know we talked about earlier how they have made it more difficult to pierce what I'll call it the corporate bail because to me it's it's all corporate in nature even though it's a limited liability company but they, I mean it is tough to pierce the corporate bail in Texas correct 
It is very tough to pierce the corporate veil in Texas. Not as we've mentioned throughout the podcast that you and I have been involved in. Uh, Texas is a business-friendly state. It has that reputation for being business-friendly. The legislature has enacted um, statutes within the Business and Commerce Code to um, make it more difficult to pierce the corporate veil. And our Texas Supreme Court has uh, rendered decisions in cases that have uh, explained what the legislature (coughs) meant by those statutes that confirm that it is, in fact, more difficult to pierce the corporate veil. Uh, the difficulty with that is is that many of these cases are very fact specific and so if you want to guard against having the corporate veil pierced if you want to guard against having the wall around the castle broken then you're going to want to have corporate policies in place that help prevent that from happening and so dane what would you suggest need to be done in order for there to be protections against piercing the corporate veil so mark i think you're right i think uh, in some of our statutes it says it will say things to the extent that just failing to follow corporate formalities in in and of itself is not a sufficient reason to pierce the corporate veil but having said that mark all the cases a lot of them are very old cases and they all talk about following corporate formalities and all that stuff still flows over into our newer cases so even though there's statutes that say that, that doesn't mean you don't follow proper corporate formalities. So the first thing that I would recommend is that they do, if anything, go overboard in following corporate formalities. So in a limited liability company situation, you know, frankly, you can get away with probably fewer corporate formalities than you can in, in a traditional corporation. Having said that, I still recommend or would recommend to the business owner using the LLC to do simple things like uh, if, if it's managed by, for example, managers, um, once a year have an annual meeting at which the members, I don't care if it's one or two members, that they formally elect the managers. And literally you can do all this on paper by what they call consent, unanimous consent. But you have a document, and that document says this is who we're electing to be the manager or managers this year to run the company. Uh, and then that, that kind of continues on from when we said we had that organizational meeting on day one. So now we've got that, that document. Now every year we've got our annual minutes showing we're running this company like a, uh, like a limited liability company. And you would place all of that typically in what they call a minute book. <clears throat> and just maintain this minute book over time because... That shows two things. It shows, uh, one, that you're, you're truly uh, uh, running this LLC like a company, and it also so, shows that you're doing it so in, a, in a, a responsible way. And the reason I add that second thing is here's something, just a little side benefit to add. <clears throat> you and I are focusing on how to protect these companies, right, from, uh, from liability and their owners from personal liability. But these minute books are also important if the company were to get audited or they just want to go get a loan and you want to go get a loan and that bank wants to see that you're running your company in a professional and responsible way they're going to ask for things from your minute book so if you have it all in place when something like that arises it is just so much easier to do now the second and I think more important thing to do is managing the finances in a a responsible way so Mark, just let's let's say ABC, um, you know, he's used to kind of paying his expenses out of his uh, personal account, 
He's, he's uh, never really had to worry about uh, separating funds he brings in from, from maintaining someone's lawns from his personal funds. Now that he's got a business set up, obviously he should have uh, a bank account in the name of that business. But what happens if, if he's getting checks or he's getting cash? And he starts putting that money in, and sometimes in his personal account, sometimes in his business account. Or what happens if he's paying expenses, sometimes from the personal account, sometimes from the business account? What is it they, what, what do they call that? Well, <clears throat> Dane, that's an excellent question. And the legal term of art for that is called commingling. And this is where the company that has been newly established, this limited liability company, wants to follow these corporate formalities. It may be difficult because the person may have been running their business as a sole proprietorship for 10 years or so, but once they become an LLC, it's all the more important that they follow these formalities in such a way that they set up a separate bank account and they ensure that they make payments, receive payments, receive income, whatever it is, has to go through that bank account. If you begin to commingle your your personal assets with the company assets, that's when you can run into some trouble. That can provide some additional fodder for this piercing the corporate veil claim. And you want to be very mindful and guard against that by simply keeping things separate. Another way to do that would be if the company that once had one pickup truck now has 10 pickup trucks. Uh, what would you say to that LLC owner, ABC company LLC about what they need to do to make sure that that is part of the company's assets. Well obviously all of those uh, trucks need to be titled in the company's name so you need to avoid a situation where uh, you, you've got a truck and you put it in your name and then you're using it in a company. All of the assets should be titled in the company's name so we make sure that everything is truly on paper in the name of the company. And Mark, going back to you talking about commingling, to me, this is what the courts are looking at these days, is how these companies are managed. They want to make sure these companies are run like a business and not like someone's personal piggy bank. And if they are treated like the pig, personal piggy bank, that's when I think the corps are, corp, uh, courts are willing to pierce that corporate veil and allow the plaintiff to get to the personal assets of the owners and officers of that company. Yeah, and so in your same example about when you're talking about company trucks, they now have 10 trucks. They all happen to be titled in Joe Smith's name. Well, guess what? If those company trucks are truly being used on behalf of the LLC, you have now given the other side, if you will, the information that they need to now be able to pierce the corporate veil and try to attach those company trucks in order to satisfy the uh, judgment that they're trying to pursue. So it becomes all the more important that we keep things separate, not commingle things, and make sure that we're running the company as it truly should be run as a company. That's right, Mark. And all these things we're talking about right now are simple things that can be done. Or just It's just simple, basic management 101. I think the reason you see sometimes people commingling is they just have bad habits and they've just, uh, they just aren't following or, or creating new and better habits. But frankly, if they just take a little bit of time to think about what they're doing, these things are just very simple things that can be done to protect the owners from personal liability. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Dane. And you know, one of the things that 
I would recommend to a company is that on an annual basis or maybe a biannual basis, they have a state of the company, an annual review to make sure that they're continuing to follow these corporate protocols, they're continuing to have things separate. And when I'm talking about uh, an annual review, I'm not talking about the you know, the minutes that you're talking about. I'm, I'm talking about a separate and independent analysis of where the company is, how many new employees they have, what additional insurances that might be out there that will help guard against any potential claims either by their employees or by third persons outside of their company. Uh, because it may not take a lot of time to do it on an annual basis, but what you're looking at is trying to figure out where, where the company is now as opposed to where it once was and trying to see what it can do now to help avoid liability for things in the future. And so, Mark, speaking of avoiding liability for things in the future, you know, as our company grows, and maybe now they're going from doing residential jobs, and ABC is now doing commercial landscaping, and it's uh, working with different property management companies, and it's got some really big jobs going. <clears throat> Typically, the company's going to have some contracts in place, so let's now talk about some of the principles we discussed earlier on things we may want to put in those contracts to protect the company from uh, liability for unexpected consequences. So you remember one of the cases we previously talked about had to do with what they call a disclaimer clause that could be put in these contracts. So maybe now, uh, maybe the, the corporate lawyers want to start thinking about putting some of these clauses in the contract that would protect ABC from uh, damages. So you remember we were talking about the disclaimer clause earlier and how uh, you, you, if you're, you're the seller of a service or product or equipment or whatever, um, you really want to limit your liability what's to what's in the contract versus what's outside of the contract. So something that the company should sh make sure it has in its contract, its form contract, is something that says that uh, the buyer of its services is not relying on any representations outside of the contract, that any representations are contained within the contract pertaining to providing the uh, landscaping services of that company, uh, because that way <clears throat> it would make it very difficult for someone to sue the company for fraud arising out of that contract. Would you agree? Absolutely. And you reminded us about how the Texas Supreme Court reviewed the disclaimer provision in an IBM contract with one of the persons or entities that had purchased uh, some of their services and products. And there, even though the jury determined that there was no breach of contract, the jury did find that there was fraud and awarded an amount to the tune of 21 plus million dollars. And under those circumstances, uh, the Supreme Court reviewed the contract and said that because the drafter of that contract included a disclaimer which prevented uh, the courts and anyone from considering anything outside of that contract, the entire award was thrown out against IBM. That's one example that we have given in our podcast about how the lawyer can use drafting experience and knowledge in how to further limit the liability. So in, in looking at ABC Company LLC, our landscaper, um, if he were to include a disclaimer in his contracts with the companies with whom he is dealing, he then has a potential mechanism in the contract built in 
to prevent against any claim like fraud from occurring because it would not be allowed because he had the correct contract drafted by him by the correct lawyer. Yes, Mark, and, uh, and if you remember another example we talked about was where our Texas Supreme Court recently threw out the punitive damages, I believe it was on a fraud claim, uh, to the tune of $5 million. So a $7 million verdict got reduced down to $2 million in actual damages. And if you remember the reason, and this was a similar type of situation, it was because of the contract. But in this particular case, um, the drafter of the contract, which would have been the, the, the seller of the, of the, I believe it was an airplane in that case, uh, they have put in a provision in the contract that limited or, or uh, that waived damages for what they call exemplary damages or punitive damages. So the Supreme Court, the Texas Supreme Court, is very willing to look to the contract and say, we're going to enforce the contract as written. So the other thing I would suggest that ABC consider is putting a limitation of damages clause in their contracts so they don't get hit with a lawsuit one day for unexpected type of damages. Would yeah, you? I would totally agree, Dane, and I would also say this. You know, these contracts that we're talking about, it sounds like we're asking uh, ABC Company LLC Landscaper to have a 20, 30-page contract. That does not have to be the case at all. In fact, it can be fairly short and contain all of these provisions that we're talking about. So beyond the disclaimer, beyond the limitation of liability provisions that we've talked about, we've also talked about a couple of other things you'll remember, one of which is an indemnity provision within its contracts. So now let's say that ABC Company LLC Landscaper has gone out and hired a trenching company to dig the trenches for um, irrigation systems that are going into the project. They have an indemnity provision in that contract that requires that trench digger to indemnify the company, the landscaper, against claims that might arise from the work that that subcontractor does, or more importantly, from something that one of the employees of the, of the landscaper does. So let's say that in this scenario, you have a person that is driving a bobcat and they back up into a driver excuse me, a worker of the subcontractor who then falls into a trench and is injured and makes a claim thereby. Well, these indemnity provisions, if written correctly, can require the subcontractor to indemnify the landscaper for the claim that was made as a result of the act of the employee driving the bobcat as well as the act of the subcontractor that's dug the trench. So there are things that are in place that can greater assist the company and protect the company from potential claims that arise from an event during the, the course of their work. Yeah, Mark, and just to refresh our listeners' uh, memory, by indemnity, we're basically saying it's, it's sort of a form of reimbursement so that if the if, if ABC and the trench uh, the trenching company were to both get sued because of something the uh, the trenching company had done or just something connected to the trenching, trenching company's work. In your example, the indemnity provision would mean that the trenching company would have to reimburse the ABC uh, for any claims that ultimately got paid. And I'm guessing there would also be something in there that said they had a duty to step in and pay for the cost of ABC's defense. Right. And some of these provisions you might remember and our, our listeners might remember, we refer to them as additional insured clauses within these contracts that require the subcontractor to name the general contractor 
as an additional insured under the subcontractor's policy. And it would do exactly as you're suggesting, Dane. It would require the subcontractor to not only indemnify or cover the landscaper for any potential verdict, but it would also require them to pick up the defense, which as we've talked about in other cases, can run into the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and even millions of dollars. But beyond that, we talked about other provisions that can be employed. So now let's talk about the circumstance whereby this landscaper and this trenching company enter into an agreement and there's a disagreement about the terms of the contract. They want to bring this in a court of law and they file a lawsuit to try to figure out the differences in their disagreement in the contract. Well, the landscaper has included an arbitration clause and the arbitration clause can now be used in that contract to ask a court to refer the case from the state court action to an arbitrator to a single person instead of a jury of six in, in the case of county court or a jury of 12 in the case of district court to return findings of fact and the arbitrator then can make a conclusion and render a decision and if the contract is written appropriately, it can be a binding decision that cannot be appealed. So now, by virtue of yet another provision in the contract, we've provided this landscaper with coverages beyond that which is provided by the insurance that that company may have chosen, but also just by virtue of having hired the right attorney with the right knowledge to include the specific provisions in these contracts has provided that additional wall around the castle that we've spoken about. Yeah, Mark, and let's, let's take another example. Let's, let's say that um, ABC, now they've got a, a good sales force out there, and the sales force goes out and they're selling uh, ABC services to all kinds of uh, commercial type of entities, including property management companies, for them to maintain uh, the land, the the grounds for you know different commercial buildings, and let's say that all of a sudden we have a disgruntled customer of ABC, and they're saying one of our salespeople went out there and they lied about what they were going to sell sell us, and 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 they didn't perf we didn't perform in a time that that person said we would, and so all of a sudden ABC gets sued for fraud. Okay, in addition to breach of this contract. So let's, let's see what would happen in that particular case. So let's assume now that we've got our LLC set up. We've managed the LLC properly. We've got our corporate formalities in place. From an accounting standpoint, we've got a, a bank account that's just solely in the name of the LLC. Only corporate or uh, business funds are flowing into that bank account. Only business expenses are being paid by the business. But yet, this uh, the the purchaser of our services wants to pierce the corporate veil, and they're asking the court to allow uh, the 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 plaintiff to go after the assets of the individual owners of ABC. You think they're going to be successful now that we have all of our corporate procedures in place? Well, you know, Dane, every case is different, and all are fact specific. But under the facts as you've laid out, the chances are greater than not that a court will not allow the veil to be pierced in that circumstance to allow that party to go after the personal assets of the individual who formed that LLC because they've done everything correctly. Now Mark, let's assume that uh, in our contracts we also have the disclaimer 
of disclaimer clauses and limitation of damages clauses. And uh, let's assume now that, uh, 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 that things don't go so well, that, that they are, they're able to get a, a verdict against ABC for breach of contract. And a verdict is for $100,000 for breaching the contract, but yet it's for $10 million uh, based for punitive damages based upon a fraud verdict. What are the chances of that verdict being upheld now? Well, Dane, I would say the chances of that would be slim to none. And I would also urge that there are probably three chances at which there would be an opportunity to reverse the, that decision in that verdict. The first of which would be with the trial court in what we would call a motion to disregard that verdict because we would utilize the IBM case and the Bombardier case to show that because we included the disclaimer provisions in our contract and because we also included the limitation of liability provision in that contract, that there should not be an opportunity to recover those kinds of damages. And should that fail, we would then have an opportunity to raise that same argument at the Court of Appeals. And if that should fail, we would then have the opportunity to raise that claim and that argument at the Texas Supreme Court. We would use these two cases to ask the court, the Texas Supreme Court in this case, to follow its prior rulings and to return a verdict that would negate those that element of damages. So at the end of the day, the worst case scenario may be that the ABC has to pay the $100,000 in actual damages, but they shouldn't have to pay any punitive damages, correct? Right. And by virtue of having had the lawyer that created the contract that included these provisions, the effect of having done that homework ahead of time literally just saved the landscaping company $10 million in that punitive damage award. Thanks, Mark. So it sounds like that uh, hopefully by this example, that if a company will follow simple procedures starting on day one in setting up its company, if it will just really have its attorneys draft some good solid contracts for it, if it will manage its limited liability company or corporation like a true limited liability company or corporation, is that it will be a strong and viable company into really eternity if, if you know other family members or whomever want to continue to run that company and really you can you can truly avoid some of these uh, uh, really unexpected consequences like we've learned about in some of these cases where there can be millions of dollars in punitive damages on, on what was relatively a, maybe a fairly minor incident. Yeah and what it also goes to show is that if the company members do their homework early and they get the right insurances in place, they can guard against a number of different types of events depending upon the circumstances that arise. It could involve an automobile accident, in which case they would have an automobile insurance policy to guard against that claim. It could involve a general liability a claim in which case they would have a general liability policy to guard against that claim. And God forbid if one of their workers were employed and they have workers' comp insurance, then it could guard against that. You know, having have these insurance policies in place will help guard against unfortunate, unforeseen circumstances, but at the end of the day, having had that insurance is better than not having had that insurance so that the company doesn't expose its personal assets to any type of claim for that type of event. Well, thank you, Mark. I've enjoyed uh, working with you on this these series of podcasts. Uh, 
Uh, thank you to all of our listeners for joining in. And uh, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact us at Langley Manac, which is a full-service business law firm here in San Antonio, Texas. Thank you for joining us today for the Langley and Benack podcast. Please subscribe to get the latest updates. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website, www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600.